Jarek McKinnon, 18 carries, three receptions on five targets, a 68% opportunity share, five red zone opportunities, 95 total yards, six evaded tackles, one touchdown, 18.5 fantasy points per game. What do you have to say about that, Michael Fabiano, who was recommending fantasy gamers pick up Matt Asiata, not Jarek McKinnon, after a lot of research? What do you have to say about that, Mike Clay, who called me ignorant for thinking that Jarek McKinnon would break out and not concerned in any way whatsoever that he would be thwarted by a Matt Asiata committee. You two can eat it! Jarek McKinnon. Jarek McGarby won. RB1, RB1, RB1! RB1! Zero RB! Ugh. Eat it! Did you really think that we weren't gonna have a Jarek McKinnon dance party? After we were so right, and so many high-profile experts were so wrong. After an RB1 week with a 70% opportunity share and five red zone touches. <laughs> of course, of course, it's party time. Living that zero RB life. And I'll be playing Jarek McKinnon this week on no halftime. Go to playerprofiler.com. You'll see play player X, in this case, Jarek McKinnon on no halftime. Click that link, set up a no halftime account, and challenge me to a contest. You can set up any ad hoc contest for any player and any point total. I've been using no halftime a lot more than DraftKings and FanDuel this season because it lets me set up any side bet with anyone on anything at any time. I can't believe this app is real. That's why there's a direct link to it on every player page on playerprofiler.com. I'm going to set up a side bet with my friend, George Kritikos. He's also going to join me on the show today. He's a Dynasty League expert. I want to start to talk about some of these players in a Dynasty League context as well as a redraft in a daily fantasy context. So I'm going to bring George on and we're going to stretch it out, talk about a lot of players. will be a long show. In the meantime, go follow George at Rotohack. And now let's go talk to him live or taped on a podcast. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Podcast. George Kritikos, he's a writer for DynastyLeagueFootball.com and the host of two podcasts. 
DLF Pod and Filmmetrics Pod. We like the professional talkers on this show. If you do multiple podcasts, I want you on this show. And in particular, I want George Kritikos on this show because one of his podcasts, Filmmetrics, focuses on both film and metrics. The nexus of those two. George Kritikos, talk to me. Doing great, man. Uh, you know, that nexus, we thought it was going to just explode. It was just going to be a fiery death, but we're 25 episodes in, I believe. So things are rolling, man. People like film. People like metrics. Film metrics. Yeah. It's almost like you hired a marketing firm and they said, well, what do people like in their podcast? Well, they like some of this stuff. And then you go to an advertising agency and they're like, well, let's here's the name for it and here's the jingle. Like, you guys came up with this, but it was really, I think, the universe was telling you you should be doing this particular podcast. Not, hey, man, you know, I thought it was going to end up like like a bad combination, but then it turned out good. It's like menthol cigarettes where you're like, oh, you can't put mint with a cigarette. And then they're like, actually, this is kind of working. Some people like it. So that's that's what we went with. A cigarette analogy? <laughs> You went cigarettes <laughs> on me? There's kids that listen to this show, George. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. They don't taste good. They taste horrible. Kids, do not smoke. If Adults, don't start smoking just because George Kritikos does and he does two podcasts and you want to do two fantasy football podcasts. Doesn't matter. We're going to set a good example. I don't smoke. So we don't smoke on this show, okay? It's bad. Smoking, bad. Very bad. George Critico setting a bad example already. We're not even five minutes into the Roto Underworld podcast. <laughs> Let's talk about last night. Last night, we had Minnesota Vikings crushing, crushing the New York Giants. The scoreboard didn't say crush, but if you watch the game, they crushed them. And a particular player crushed. Jarek McKinnon. No, Jarek McKinnon. I can't even say the word. Jarek Every time I say it, Jarek McKinnon, like a Jarek McKinnon, a positive jolt of energy just shoots up my spinal cord into my extremities, and I just tingle. Do you own Jarek McKinnon in any dynasty leagues? I do. I have him yes. in two leagues, and uh, both were from both were from rookie drafts. So, so I can't say I got him after the fact. But uh, I'll tell you what: when when I watched that game last night and looking at it again today, the thing that got me most excited—not just the touches, but he had five red zone touches, which I think was the thing where everyone was a little worried. So to me, it well, just adds to the excitement. I was like, oh my god, they're actually using him in the red zone. Easy on the everyone. I wasn't worried. We were very vocal <laughs> in our not worrying. And then Jarek McKinnon has four red zone touches and Matt Asiata has one red zone touch because Matt Asiata has one role, the uber short yardage back. Goal line carry from the four yard line, it's McKinnon. But if they're on the, exactly the one yard line, in the off chance the team is exactly on the one yard line, then yes, Matt Asiata will be in the game. Just like with the New Orleans Saints, John Kuhn will be in the game. But last time I checked, George, Mark Ingram was a really valuable running back. And so if Jarek McKinnon is merely playing the Mark Ingram role for the Minnesota Vikings, a more athletic version of Mark Ingram, that's exciting. Yeah, that, no, I, I 100% agree. And I mean, there's also, you know, the fact that Sam Bradford's <laughs> actually playing well can't hurt him either. Sam Bradford had some throws from the pocket where he wasn't even looking. The rush was instantly on him, and he just uncorked a pass 
25 yards downfield, perfectly placed to Charles Johnson. These under-pressure throws to the outside by Sam Bradford. I haven't seen these since Oklahoma. You're right, and, and I'm with you. And if you can get a perfectly placed ball that Charles oh. hands a stone Johnson can catch, I mean, I'm I'm all for it. Oh, Charles Johnson, the worst timed tweet in my lifetime happened last night. See, I told myself last year after I got in trouble on a couple Sunday afternoons last year, I tweeted about player performances in the second and third quarter. And we all know as fantasy analysts, that's a mistake. You never want to tweet about a player's performance in a game in the third quarter because you never know what's going to happen in the fourth quarter. I've been in trouble criticizing Blake Bortles in the third quarter only to watch Blake Bortles melt my face in garbage time. So I swore it off. I've abstained from in-game player performance analysis through four weeks. I've been doing really well. It's like quitting smoking. <laughs> but last night I had to take a drag. <laughs> I did. I, I lit one up last night. Because I saw the snap counts for Charles Johnson after the first half in which he was behind Adam Thielen. He was behind Corderell Patterson. And I said, that's it. Laquan Treadwell's active. This is it. Charles Johnson's officially the number five receiver on the Vikings. I'm going to tweet to everyone. It's over. We can no longer be Charles Johnson truthers if he's number four in snaps behind Adam Thielen and Corderell Patterson. We're not allowed to continue to believe in that guy at age 27. And then what happened? Two straight big plays, one of them setting up a Jarek McKinnon touchdown, and he ends up leading all Vikings in receiving yards. And it happened moments after this tweet. was. I mean, this is what happens. You cannot tweet about player performances during the game. It will inevitably haunt you, and I won't do it again. I'll do it again. I'm definitely going to do it again. I will do it again. Once the genie was out of the bottle last night, and I said, oh, fuck it. I'm already wrong. It took five minutes for this tweet to look foolish. Let's just keep it going. Then my next tweet is calling Laquan Treadwell a bust before he plays a snap in the NFL. That wasn't classy. I felt bad, but it was a clever tweet. It's not like I said, hey, Laquan Treadwell's a bust. I superimposed Laquan Treadwell's headshot on a screen shot of the definition of overrated on dictionary.com at least that was clever right oh yeah yeah absolutely clever and <laughs> well the tweet wasn't clever i don't want to i don't want to make that you know something that people actually think i'm saying because i'm not i'm i'm a very staunch enemy of of game day twitter i do not like it oh. i i hate game day twitter oh. i avoid game day twitter Nothing good happens from game day Twitter. Ever. It's like being out after midnight. Ever. You know, nothing good happens. That's game day Twitter. You, you mentioned Treadwell. This was the longest possible runway to Treadwell talk that you could possibly imagine. <laughs> but I will agree with you. I woke up today feeling dirty, knowing about my game day tweets, knowing I did it, didn't care. It was bad for my body. It was bad for my soul. And I regretted it the next morning, and I won't do it again until I do it again. You'll get that bad taste in your mouth again is what's going to happen. So my thing with Treadwell here is, uh, you know, obviously we haven't seen him yet. Like you said, you know, it's hard to put him as a, as a bust. I don't think you can go that far. But, right, I mean, you can't not read into it to the extent that if he's not seeing the field, 
and we're not talking about a very prolific set of wide receivers outside of maybe a Stefan Diggs, depending on where you sit there. I mean, you have to you have to at least discount him a little bit, right? You can't say that he's still number two, number three, number four, depending where you had him before the season. You can't sit him there anymore. There's other receivers doing well, and he's just not there. And like, it's not to say he's a bust, but it's easy to but it's fair to say that he's not worth what he was two months ago. Corey Coleman is six months older than Laquan Treadwell, so similar age, and he already has a fantasy WR1 week in the NFL on his resume. Sterling Shepard's been usable most weeks. Will Fuller is looking like the best possible late-round wide receiver target in fantasy football for 2016. Michael Thomas was the leading receiver for the New Orleans Saints last week. And Tajay Sharp has been the starter since week one. So we have at least four receivers that could stake a claim to being better than Laquan Treadwell at the NFL level at this moment. The count is now five wide receivers from the 2016 draft class that have a strong case for being ranked ahead of Laquan Treadwell in Dynasty Leagues. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you there. And and then, it, and then it begs the question, if you don't own him, how much of a discount's out there, right? And, and I know that a lot of people point to the whole idea of rookies are insulated and, you know, the discount doesn't exist right away. But we don't usually see a first-round pick like Treadwell get this buried this early. You know, Odell Beckham was different. He was injured. You know, Treadwell hasn't been injured. He's just simply not playing. So to me, that's an exception where I think the discount exists. The Minnesota Vikings are managing Laquan Treadwell, similar to how the Carolina Panthers managed Devin Funches. These are very similar players. Both players lack explosive athleticism, but they won in college by being bigger than defensive backs around them and securing catches in traffic. That's how Devin Funchess produced, albeit not at a prolific level, but relative to his teammates in a low-volume offense, Devin Funchess was relatively productive at Michigan, and that's how he got the job done in a similar fashion to Laquan Treadwell. Their draft capital also wasn't so dissimilar. Laquan Treadwell, a late first round pick. Devin Funchess, an early second round pick. So we need to start thinking about Laquan Treadwell as being something closer to Devin Funchess than Mike Evans, which is where people had him six months ago. Well, and and I, I think that's a great comparison. And you can even add more to it to say they were both really young guys coming out. You know, they weren't as polished as some of these other players who are getting some success early and even their teams when you think about the fact that they were strong defensive teams they were teams that are wide receiver needy but they're willing to practice enough patience to say hey let's start to our tight end let's find a different receiver in the case of Ted Ginn with with Carolina last year and it's Stefan Diggs with Minnesota this year they're willing to kind of wait that year or two and just say hey we don't want to put this guy in the field and maybe it goes back to the whole idea of remember when year three breakouts were a thing I mean not everybody needs to be a rookie performer right away right Michael Thomas and Sterling Shepard are almost two years older than Laquan Treadwell Devin Funchess also came out early in his age 21 year not all receivers are Amari Cooper most receivers are not Receivers like Devin Funchess and Laquan Treadwell should stay in school. They made mistakes by coming out when they did. 
the angle of Laquan Treadwell's career arc would have a better trajectory if he had stayed in school. If you are not a prolific producer and you still come out at age 21, no one should be surprised when you're a game day inactive in your rookie season. Well, and he was a guy who missed time too in college. So, I mean, it just adds to the fact that he wasn't a guy who had the opportunity to get the polish that even in Amari Cooper, it's a, it's a good example because Amari Cooper had two full seasons of being the guy. Right. So whether it was pain or most times it was pleasure, as he did quite well, but <laughs> you, you can't you can't sit there and, and say that you know every 21-year-old's the same. I mean, Devin Funches was switching positions in college. So you have it different for every guy. So not everyone, every 21-year-old's the same, not every 23, 24-year-old's the same. I mean, you look at, yeah, uh, Shepard and, and Thomas are doing well, but Braxton Miller struggled, and he's a guy who's older as well, but obviously switching positions and all that. So, yeah, going back to Treadwell, I, I think there's probably a discount out there, and, and I'm willing to float the offers to kind of see if, if it exists for real or not, and in my individual leagues. I'm just not sure that he's better than Stefan Diggs because Stefan Diggs also came out at age 21, and that was why his rookie season was so impressive, that he was able to compile all those receptions at age 21. That's very rare. He was more productive than Amari Cooper as a rookie. So the idea that Laquan Treadwell will ever usurp Stephon Diggs as the primary receiver for the Minnesota Vikings is in doubt. And that's why I'm not floating offers for Treadwell. I'm not trying to acquire him at a discount. I'm letting someone else deal with Laquan Treadwell, just like I'm letting someone else deal with Devin Funchess. I think that's fair because there's always the idea of, right, you have the dead roster spot, and that's what Treadwell or Funchess is going to give you until there's production. And don't and I don't look at it as a replacement player or anything like that. I think it's quite simply, look, you have X number of roster spots here. Every one of those developmental spots you give is giving up depth. And you have to be willing to measure how many of those you're willing to to allow on your team. This also goes back to something we talked about in April, that there is value to drafting the older receivers in Dynasty. The older receivers receive such a discount because a lot of times they have a late breakout age or they won't have as many years of their prime producing for your fantasy team. So their lifetime value gets discounted and their prospect profile is degraded because their breakout ages, like in the case of Michael Thomas, 21.5, 24th percentile, his talent profile doesn't look as good when he's breaking out at such an old age. However, the benefit is the older receivers are more likely to get snaps right away and produce right away for your fantasy team. And then their resale value in trade is a lot higher throughout their rookie year. And in the offseason between their rookie year and their sophomore year, that's the case for drafting these older wide receivers in dynasty rookie drafts. The other trait that you're looking for is someone with truly special athleticism. That's why we're advocating drafting Will Fuller over Laquan Treadwell, because Will Fuller has a clearer path to playing time, playing a stretch X position at the NFL level, as opposed to being asked, to play the featured split end role or featured flanker role, the role DeAndre Hopkins plays in Houston. They can just say, hey, Will Fuller, you're going to stretch the field, run go routes. Whether you're polished or not, we can use your athleticism on day one in week one. They couldn't say that to Laquan Treadwell. 
That's another reason why you target the players with the Will Fuller athleticism profile over the Laquan Treadwell athleticism profile in rookie drafts. Let someone else develop the Laquan Treadwell archetype. Well, and and the other thing I'd add to that, and I, I looked into this a little bit yesterday, you know, Will Fuller, obviously, right, that stretch X guy, but he hasn't really been that successful on deep routes in terms of a catch rate, in terms of, of production, in the sense that he's only 5 of 18 on deep routes from what I've seen. And doesn't matter. Everyone says, yeah, it doesn't matter because, one, he's he's more well-rounded than what people gave him credit for. He's 14 to 16 on short routes this year. I mean, he's looked great overall. And the other thing is he's helping the rest of that team out. And that's why, even though I'm not an Osweiler fan, I bought him in a few places for really cheap because I knew that even if he's not targeting Fuller, he's helping the rest of that offense. And you look at deep targets for the rest of that team, they're six for 12. For a guy in Osweiler who everyone compares to Ryan Tannehill as like the worst deep ball quarterback that exists in the NFL, he's an average deep ball guy because Will Fuller commands so much attention and it allows him to look in other directions and it's been nothing but positive and I agree with your points on Will Fuller I do think he had such a clear path to early production and to early contribution to the rest of the team we talked about this with Kenny Stills players with the Kenny Stills Will Fuller athletic profile bring real scarce tactical value to a football team and that's where that path to playing time comes from it's not necessarily about who's on the depth chart when it's not an arbitrary decision by the coaching staff the guy has four three five speed they want that guy on the field it's not hard to figure that out sometimes So now, so also last night, the Giants played. You can almost forget, but the Giants were on the field as well. And Orleans Darqua was very fantasy relevant. But I mentioned I was on Twitter and a lot of the conversation revolved around lamenting Paul Perkins' role. Why isn't Paul Perkins starting over Orleans Darqua? Yeah, Perkins is a funny one because you look at that roster, even now, right, post post all these injuries and everything that's happening, and Perkins isn't the best at anything. He's okay at everything, and that's what I think everyone sees, but Dark was clearly the better runner, just like Bobby Rainey's the better receiver. And what do you do with a guy like Paul Perkins when you know that you have better options in every other role? You, you can't do anything with him. And I'm not going to go so far as to say, oh, he's a bust or, oh, he's not good, because I think he's he's capable in a role, but the Giants position themselves with all these guys who had specified positions within this running back cauldron, and they're using them. And it's more successful than just saying, oh, yeah, let's just use Paul Perkins on three downs. Paul Perkins is caught in a touch squeeze. This is a touch squeeze when you're not the best satellite back and you're not the best between the tackles back you end up getting three touches a game. Like that's just how a touch squeeze works. And Paul Perkins is young. He's 21 years old. So he will have an opportunity down the road to become a contributor for a football team. That running back talent profile is not the number one driver of running back fantasy points. It's all about touches and where you sit on the depth chart. So next week, Bobby Rainey could go down with an injury or Orleans Darkwa goes down with an injury. All of a sudden, Paul Perkins is getting 
getting 15 touches, then he becomes very, very, very fantasy viable. And we're excited about Paul Perkins. That's how quickly things can shift. The nice thing about Paul Perkins is he has an all-around skill set. He doesn't do anything that well. He's not explosive like Jarek McKinnon. He's not a slick receiver like Charles Sims, but he does all of those things adequately. So if they ever decide to give him 15 to 20 touches, he will be someone you're going to want to start in fantasy football. No one's hating Paul Perkins. We're just marveling at the dynamic and how quickly the fantasy football community just wants the guy with draft capital, just wants the fifth round pick to get in there so bad. When if you go to playerprofiler.com and you search for Orleans Darkwa, you're like, oh, wait a second. Uh, wait. So Orleans Darkwa is bigger than Perkins. He's faster, has more burst, is more agile, was a more productive runner and receiver at the college level. Wait a second. How did this happen? Why wasn't he drafted? I don't know why he wasn't drafted. I don't run an NFL team. I would have drafted him. So what? I have playerprofiler.com. NFL GMs don't. You do! You can go to playerprofiler.com and you can see pretty clearly that Orleans Darkwood should be on your fantasy team! I'll give you a second to, to catch your breath there. <laughs> God damn it! Stop complaining about Orleans Darkwa! He's good, people! He's good! Fuck! I, I agree with you. I think that, that the, the draft capital just sticks around way too long. And I think that always seems to be this determinant of talent, you know, just because he's drafted an X round. Yeah. <laughs> he's 24 years old, George. He's 24 years old. He wasn't drafted. So that's a death sentence. Since when? Since when? Good thing no one told that to Fred Jackson, who played the league till age 34. At a certain point, you have to say, forget about draft capital. Are they still on the team that wanted them? And that should be more important two, three years. I mean, you could argue even after one year uh, when you think about some of these guys here. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you there, man. I think uh, I think his dark was running job as long as, you know, he's healthy. And it sounds like Jennings is coming back fairly soon. But I'm not really excited about that. Jennings is kind of just an older Paul Perkins, really. Jennings has ligament damage in his hand. So I'm not a doctor, but the way I view it is if he can't play with some sort of brace in week four and it's not going to be healed, why are we worried about him coming back in the next few weeks? It's been demonstrated that he can't play through the injury and the injury has a multi-week recovery process. Why are we worried about Rashad Jennings at this point? Why? Why? I don't think there is any reason. I don't think the running game was the problem last night and I don't think it's the problem overall when you look at how bad the defense was with the Giants and they obviously are having troubles with that that rotation and getting pressure on the quarterback and everything else I wouldn't be worried about it if I were the Giants I think they had the right approach in getting a lot of people with defined talents and putting them in a position to succeed I think it's it's a pretty simple formula but Maybe I'm just crazy. Maybe that's like the zero running back of the NFL. You can already hear people saying, wait, you keep talking about watching the Monday night game. I thought Fantasy Mansion didn't watch football. I thought you just watched the numbers on the screen like the Matrix. You said you don't have cable. You don't watch football. You don't have a television. Well, I do have a television. I don't have cable, but I do have a television. And I did watch one particular game from last weekend, and that was Atlanta, Carolina, because when a wide receiver posts 300 receiving yards, you're going to want to watch that 
that game and see how that was possible. So I'm preempting you. Before you could even email me about watching the games, even though I said I don't watch the games, I watched the games, okay? I did. I watched the games, and I saw multiple highlights from the Minnesota game. So yes, you got me. I watch football. So when I'm watching football, I can tell that Orleans Darkwa has talent. He deserves to be a starting running back in the NFL. And you talked about talent. How do you define quote unquote talent? Yeah, it's man, it's hard, right? Because you can, you can really see the people who are very talented. That's easy to see. I think even the, the relatively newest people to football are going to figure out the most talented guys on the field. And I think you can figure out the least talented. It's kind of that like 80% in between. And for me, and, and maybe this is where I'm a little bit more metrics numbers driven and a little less of a film person is that, you know, I, I like to look at, you know, their athleticism, their past production and, and adjust a lot of those things. And then I think there's this other component that's a lot harder, which is that whole game understanding, which is, I think, where the film people like to come in and say, hey, you know, but they have vision or they have this or they have that and you can't see it in the numbers. I disagree. You can see all those things in the numbers, but I think it's also good to understand what it means to have that vision and when that vision or whatever it is comes into play. So, you know, as far as defining talent, I see it as like a production athleticism and then this kind of qualitative component that you have to decipher through everything else. I think the talent profile of a player is determined by their size because someone can be very small and very quick and can do a lot of really fun, cool things with the football, but they're just not big enough to produce. Trendon Holiday was never going to be a WR1 in fantasy. It didn't matter if he ran a four flat 40 and had the best hands on the field. Trendon Holiday wasn't going to be a WR1 in fantasy. So you take the player's size, you look at their athletic profile, but most importantly, you look at their resume of production back through time. People talk about talent, talent, talent. That seems to be lost in the talent equation. All along, I've said that Kristen Michael would be an outlier if he produced big numbers in the NFL, and it's turning out to be true. Kristen Michael looks like the Martavis Bryant of running backs, someone who hadn't historically produced at any level of football and then becomes a producer at the NFL level because I don't simply define Kristen Michael's talent as his 40 time, his agility score multiplied by his BMI. I look at Kristen Michael's body of work first and then his size and athleticism as well to determine Kristen Michael's talent profile. And what I'm hearing from you is you have a similar process that when you say a guy is talented, you're also implying he has a history of dominance on the football field. We can measure statistically. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I get that, that there's a difference between NFL production and college production, you know, the talent levels shift and everything like that. But even those things, you know, we're able to account for and we're able to look at. And then there's always the component of, and and, and I talked about that game understanding a bit, and, and I'll point to a few examples. You think of Jarek McKinnon or you think of Terrell Pryor, two guys who used to be quarterbacks. And there's that qualitative kind of, that, that very difficult to analyze component to their game, which is they get the game. And it should show up in production, which it usually does, even if it is at a different position. And that's why they can be successful at running back or wide receiver. You know, it's because they take 
all those other components, and then they add in that game understanding to a new position. Julian Edelman, same principle applies. I think you also alluded to how film analysts like to use what they see on film to define a player's ideal role for the team, where he's best deployed. And sometimes I agree with those assessments because they also align with the numbers. So someone might say, Theo Riddick is best deployed in space. Well, I agree with that. I see that when I watch the tape. There's a visceral experience watching Theo Riddick catch a ball in space and get the absolute most out of it. That's something that you can see on film, and the numbers back it up. He was a receiver at Notre Dame before converting to running back at the NFL level. But there are also cases where I think a stylistic bias leads a film grinder to an inaccurate conclusion. So, for example, right now I'm reading that Jaquiz Rogers is a better runner between the tackles than Charles Sims. And that happens to align perfectly with a recent Roto World blurb on Charles Sims. Bucks coach Dirk Cutter suggests that Charles Sims' role could be reduced. No, no, don't reduce his role, Dirk. What are you doing? Cutter goes on to say, maybe we've got to go back and really fit the roles into the players and not the players into the roles. And you hear a lot of film analysts say something similar when analyzing players based on the eye test. They then determine where they think the optimal deployment for that player and his skill set. And the amazing thing is, I thought that type of analysis was reserved for the anecdotal fantasy analysts. I didn't know that that type of gibberish was actually uttered by coaches. But now we're seeing that coaches like Dirk Cutter are doing eye test based role fit based on nothing, George, based on nothing. That analysis is supposed to be reserved for the anecdote regurgitating hack fantasy football analysts. Charles Sims is not a poor between the tackles runner. He's just tall. He's six foot tall. That doesn't mean he's too upright to be between the tackles runner. We learned this lesson with David Johnson last year. The idea that a 215-pound running back is best deployed as a receiver because he's only nifty in space is dumbfounding. It doesn't make logical sense. It makes sense with Theo Riddick because Theo Riddick is tiny. Charles Sims is the size of a bell cow back in the NFL. And... Passing game backs necessarily have to be dynamic in space. Everyone would agree Charles Sims is dynamic in space. His yards per touch last year illuminate that. You have never, George. I'm not even going to ask the question because I know the answer. The answer is never. You've never heard of a satellite back in the NFL being called stiff or upright until today. Until today, this is the first time, this is unprecedented that we have a stiff, upright runner who's one of the league's best satellite backs. I mean, that criticism of a satellite back is nonsensical. It's paradoxical. You can't say that. If Theo Riddick were 20 pounds heavier, he'd be a real-life and fantasy stud running back. 
But I would agree that in the case of a Charles Sims, just like in the case of a DeMarco Murray, the running backs with a higher center of gravity do need a better offensive line. We saw what happened to DeMarco Murray's production last year when he didn't have an efficient offensive line blocking for him. But Charles Sims being comparable to DeMarco Murray is heresy because the same analysts that are cheering for Jaquiz Rogers to usurp Charles Sims because they think Charles Sims is an upright runner. Guess what, George? Those people love DeMarco Murray! I just can't believe it. It just drives me crazy. Look, you know, yeah, the, the Jaquiz Rogers stuff is, is ridiculous. I mean... Jaquiz Rogers? <laughs> you are rooting for Jaquiz Rogers to take over? Exactly. It's... I mean, it's crazy because, look, I, I I agree with you. I don't think Charles Sims should be limited to, you know, this this outside only has to be in space type of guy. To me, the big problem is that they're not diversifying the directions of his runs enough. They ran 50% of the time down the middle against Denver. And guess what's going to happen there? You're not going to get anything because they know where it's going. You're funneling in all the defenders in on the guy because you know that every other time it's going right there, right down the middle, right over the center. The problem is you're not giving Sims the opportunity to run inside, outside, over the tackle, you know, toss play outside. They're not changing it up enough because they're used to Doug Martin, who I like Doug Martin fine, but he's not that type of back. They're two very different backs and they're trying to play Charles Sims as if he's Doug Martin. And he's not. He's not Doug Martin. So, yeah, it's just... He's not Doug Martin, <laughs> but that doesn't mean he can't be just as good if they call plays that align with his skills. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He could be just as, if not more effective, depending on how he gets used. It's just they're using him wrong. It has nothing to do with his ability or inability to to play a certain role within the offense. It's They're playing this vanilla-style offense. It's not just hurting him. It's hurting Jameis Winston. It's hurting Mike Evans. It's hurting everyone in that offense. I mean, yeah, Winston's had two big games, but then he's had two massive flops of, of games. So, you know, who do you blame? Do you blame the entire offense or do you blame the offensive coordinator who's not diversifying the plays? There is one place that you can direct the blame that we haven't talked about yet, the offensive line. Because, yes, I would love it if Dirk Cutter was creative enough to simply go to the tape of the Tennessee Titans and see the plays they're calling for DeMarco Murray and call those plays. I wish that he was savvy enough to do such a thing, but he's clearly not. Dirk Cutter, not the savviest of offensive coordinators, but it's not just that Charles Sims struggled against Denver, and it's not surprising that a player like Jameis Winston or Charles Sims would struggle against Denver. The most concerning thing about Charles Sims and Jameis Winston's Week 4 performances, you saw an offensive line that was outmatched facing Denver. It's one thing to go face Denver with a good offensive line. It's another thing to face a defense like Denver with a bad offensive line. And if you go to playerprofiler.com, the offensive line efficiency grade for the Buccaneers run blocking unit, 73.2, 25th in the league. Do you know which quarterback has been hit or hurried or sacked the most on a per attempt basis? Jameis Winston. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers offensive line is one of the worst in the league. So it makes sense 
that Charles Sims is going to struggle against Denver with a bad offensive line, given that a running back with his profile does need a good offensive line more than another running back that has a lower center of gravity like Doug Martin. I get it. Doug Martin is better at avoiding tackles in the backfield than Charles Sims. But I think if you gave Charles Sims simply an average offensive line, that on a per-touch basis, he would outproduce Doug Martin. This whole offensive line conversation necessarily leads to the quarterback position. Because when you look around the league, a lot of high-profile players are underperforming, most notably quarterbacks Andrew Luck, Cam Newton, and Russell Wilson. And what do those quarterbacks, in addition to Jameis Winston, have in common? Inefficient pass-blocking offensive lines. All four of the quarterbacks I've listed, and Ryan Tannehill is the fifth, those five quarterbacks lead the league in hits, hurries, and sacks per dropback. So if we're trying to find an answer, why are these players struggling? I think you can look at the offensive line, and that is the number one driver. We had J.J. Zacharyson on the show, and he said the probability of Cam Newton repeating as the number one quarterback in fantasy is very low because there are a lot of external forces that can work against him in 2016 that weren't working against him in 2015. And George, that's what we're seeing now. The offensive line is betraying Cam Newton. It's betraying Andrew Luck. It's betraying Ryan Tannehill. It's betraying Russell Wilson. Now the question is, what do we do about it as fantasy gamers? What do we do in Dynasty? Andrew Luck and Cam Newton's still the top two Dynasty quarterbacks? So you have a lot of a lot a lot of things in there. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna backpedal for a second to when you talked about the five quarterbacks there. The the one guy that I would point out is I have very long setups to my questions. No, it's okay. Uh, it, it it gives me a lot to respond to. So <laughs> the thing with Russell Wilson is one, he's a guy who consistently holds the ball longer than anyone else in the league when it comes to from the time they snap the ball till the time he throws it. And so he puts a ton of pressure on his offensive line. And like you said, they've gotten worse. So it just adds to the misery for a guy like Russell Wilson. And it means he's getting pressured on 40 to 50% of the, the throws that he has. And all that does is that ups the error percentage, that ups the probability that something bad happens, whether it's like you said, a hit, a hurry, a sack, or an interception or, or bad pass or whatever it is. So I think it's all kind of catching up to Wilson because he's been flirting with that since he was a rookie. And now that he's a little dinged up and you know that lock gets hurt, and he has all these issues around it, it makes it much harder to trust him. When it comes to Luck and it comes to Cam, I mean, Luck's dealt with it his whole career. Uh, you know, he, he's never had a good offensive line. That's why they spent a first rounder on a center. It's true. But I, I still do have the two of them at the top. I just think they fall further down the list when you compare them to the rest of the positions and the rest of the players in the league. And I think that's the better way to look at it is, I'm not so worried about my positional rankings with with some of these guys. It's just more that I de-emphasize the quarterback because it just reaffirms the same issue we see every year, which is it's a very volatile position in terms of, yes, these guys are going to be good quarterbacks in their careers, but season to season, you can't count on them always being a top two, a top three, a top five quarterback. And you can feel more comfortable doing that with a wide receiver. A quarterback I put in my top 10 recently, Carson Wentz, because... He's undeniable. I know he's older than Marcus Mariota, but the number of young quarterbacks that 
are proving competent on a weekly basis. <laughs> They're hard to find, George. They really are to find. And with competent offensive lines, almost non-existent. Young quarterbacks you can trust week to week to be efficient with gut offensive lines. The list is two. Derek Carr, Carson Wentz. Yeah, and the and the thing with Wentz that, you know, obviously everyone compares him to Dak, right? Because Dak's the other rookie quarterback who's been starting and he's been pretty error free. But Wentz is a guy who's actually putting up points. Dak really isn't. I mean, he's more of a safe quarterback, and Wentz is actually creating offense with that team. And that's why I, I don't have an issue with him being in your top 10. I don't quite have him there yet, uh, but I need to reassess my rankings this week. I try to do it every week to two weeks. But with a guy like Wentz, you're right. You know, he's a little older, but with that, again, is that development and that experience that we kind of talked about before. And he has good weapons. Everyone likes to downgrade Jordan Matthews. Everyone likes to downgrade Zach Ertz. But it's not a bad set of skill position players. And then you have a pretty good running back rotation. Yes, there's not a clear, you know, bell cow, top of the heap type of running back. Wendell Smallwood. What's that? Wendell Smallwood. (laughs) Yeah, Wendell. (laughs) Wendell Smallwood is a workhorse bell cow. If you had a farm and somehow, some way, crossbred a bell cow and a workhorse, out would pop Wendell Smallwood. He's that good. I mean, I have him as an RB1 in fantasy this year, ahead of Ezekiel Elliott and David Johnson. Not by much, but slightly ahead of them. Yeah, I don't even know how to how to respond to that one, man. <laughs> it's, I I like I like Smallwood fine. I don't uh, I don't know if they're gonna commit to him this year it just seems like they're willing to play this rotating running back game if he's on the waiver wire and he projects to get touches i will inject hyperbole into that player that's all i do i mean that's the formula of the show so we talked earlier about running back talent profiles and there's a backfield right now in oakland with two very different running back talent profiles two distinctly different running styles skill sets when you look at the disparity between two running backs in a backfield, Theo Riddick, Zach Zenner, the Oakland backfield has that kind of dichotomy. DeAndre Washington all the way on one side, Latavius Murray all the way on the other. How do you see this Oakland backfield evolving this year, but also for Dynasty in the years ahead? So I've struggled with Washington. He's been one of the harder ones for me because I like the explosiveness. I like the big playability. I just don't think it plays as a featured back. And and that might be more me saying that instinctually and, and saying it less with, you know, kind of firm numbers to back all of it up. But I mean, he's had some big plays. He's looked good in spots. I just don't think it carries for those full games. Whereas I, I like Murray. I was probably one of the people that was higher on him than most, just because I think he's a guy who can carry the workload and be pretty effective. And he has ability in the receiving game. I think the way it probably is going to play out is kind of like, uh, and I'm going to hate this comparison, but I'll say it anyway. It's kind of like... Jeremy Hill and Juvenard. Yeah. Yeah, I knew it! I knew it! This is not on the show sheet, everybody. This is not on the show sheet, but I knew, I knew it. I know this man, George Kreedikos. <laughs> The only thing I don't like about the comparison, I think Murray's a better receiver than what Hill is. I think he'll still get some receptions, but I do think that there's the whole game script components going to come into play to an extent, and I think you're just going to get those ups and downs, and I don't think it's going to be as exciting as you want both to be. Like you, you want at least one of them to be a top 24 back, but it could be the case where they kill each other 
and it becomes this thing where it's like you're lucky to play them in the flex. We saw this with Jeremy Hill and Giovanni Bernard in 2014. Both Giovanni Bernard and Jeremy Hill were fantasy viable week in, week out in 2014. Why? The Bengals were top of the league in run-blocking efficiency in 2014. Everything the Carolina Panthers and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are not, that is what Oakland has in its offensive line. And if you're going to invest in a committee back, Latavius Murray is a committee back. 44.7% opportunity share, 35th in the league. Why? Because he's splitting opportunities down the middle with DeAndre Washington, who has a 24.6% opportunity share. And we're not even factoring in Jalen Richard, or is it Richard? I don't know. I was thinking about that too before we started the segment. Because I think of that that pitcher's Clayton Richard, but then, you know, there's other guys that go by Richard, so I'm not sure. Anyway. (laughs) Look at DeAndre Washington's efficiency, and it's what you would expect from Latavius Murray. You look at Latavius Murray's efficiency, it's what you would expect from DeAndre Washington. Latavius Murray, 90% catch rate, 26.0% juke rate, 23rd in the league. No one thinks of Latavius Murray as elusive. That's not something that comes to mind when you think about Latavius Murray. When you think about Latavius Murray, you think big, explosive, between the tackles, power runner with big play ability. But then you look at DeAndre Washington. DeAndre Washington has three breakaway runs of 15 yards or more already in only 22 carries. That comes to a 13.6 breakout rate. These are new metrics now on player profile breakaway runs and breakaway rate so deandre washington is the big play guy and latavius murray is the reliable pass catcher out of the backfield these things don't make sense but at the end of the day what do both of them have in common top 10 production premiums plus 33.9 production premium number six in the league for deandre washington 26.6 production premium eighth in the league for Latavius Murray why do both of these running backs have top 10 production premiums what do they have in common offensive lines with an above 100 efficiency grade on playerprofiler.com so it's a false choice George it's like the 2014 Bengals you can roster either one and they're both flexible they'll just never be a fantasy RB1 one because one is cannibalizing the touches of the other but that's not necessarily a bad thing i see committees oftentimes with a glass half full i get two fantasy viable running backs both with talent profiles that can give me explosive weeks with only one touch in any given game given the wide lanes that both of them are being afforded yeah murray's interesting because i think the knock on him was that he couldn't run up the middle and and everything else. But he's a guy who's three-quarters of his runs are up the middle. He's averaging over four yards per carry, which is above the league average. And and like you said, a lot of that, I don't want to say a lot of it, but a, a good part of that's the offensive line improvements. And I think part of it is just his maturation as a runner. And then you add in the fact that he's still an explosive guy, so he can play that as well. And like you say, he has the pass-catching ability. How explosive is he? 115.896th percentile speed score. Latavius Murray is a 50-yard touchdown threat on any given carry. Exactly. And, and, And the thing that makes him even more explosive to me is that there is another guy 
that can bring him off the field once in a while and he's not having to grind like he did last year to these 20, 25 touch games. I think it's a perfect scenario. I just worry that they rotate almost too much and it becomes where neither guy becomes as viable as you would like them to be, right? Everyone's going to see it and say, why couldn't one guy handle this workload? I don't think one guy can do that. So I think it is the perfect scenario in terms of it optimizes what they can do. I just think the ceiling's a little bit lower than what people would like. Right. Longer term, you like DeAndre Washington more in Dynasty because he's 22 years old. Latavius Murray's 26 years old. Latavius Murray's at the age apex for a running back already. He was an old breakout running back in the NFL, and now he's 26 years old. But there's a good chance he plays out until age 30, and he has a number of productive years. The reason I'm asking you this question is because I'm getting so many questions about DeAndre Washington and when is he going to take over? over the job permanently my answer is always he's not why don't you like Latavius Murray this is why we have efficiency metrics George this is why playerprofiler.com exists because you see the hack fantasy football analysts only looking at the touch distribution and thinking this is a major red flag for Latavius Murray owners now is the time to sell Latavius Murray no it's not because He's one week away from an 80-yard touchdown run and you slapping your forehead because you threw him into a trade unnecessarily. Yeah, I mean, his outside runs, he's averaging over 10 yards a carry. So, you know, I, I don't understand why we're, we're complaining. I think people just don't like it because he's running so much up the middle and the likelihood of that big run is lessened. But he's still a consistent yardage producer, and I think that's ultimately what you want is a guy who's going to get you yards. However it is, whether it's 180-yard run or, you know, 15 runs for 80 yards. I don't care. Either way, it's 80 yards. This is not the Minnesota backfield. There's no question that Jarek McKinnon is the best running back talent in all phases in Minnesota. So we can feel free to practice fantasy wanting, just hoping and praying that the coaches get it right and install Jarek McKinnon as a bell cow. The fantasy wanting I'm reading regarding DeAndre Washington is simply misplaced. Everyone is just in a rush to fill a touch vacuum. Just give me a bell cow. Give him to me now. Make him a bell cow tomorrow. No, in the case of Latavius Murray versus DeAndre Washington, their efficiencies would be degraded if they were installed as bell cows, and the team's performance is optimized by playing them in these specific roles. The Oakland coaching staff, unlike the Tampa Bay coaching staff, knows what they have, and they have a great offensive line, and they're leveraging it. Yeah, I'm with you. And that's and that's kind of going back to Geo and Hill, right? That's the difference is that they just don't have that offensive line. I mean, you could argue that the Cincinnati pass attack is, I, I'd say, relatively as effective as Oakland in terms of, you know, they're going to keep pressure off the running game. It's a balanced offense. But when you look at Geo and you look at Hill, there's a clear difference in that offensive line. Both guys are running for over four yards per carry to the left. They're both running for under three yards per carry to the right. <laughs> so... So it's pretty clear where the problem is, and they haven't been able to solve it. Yeah, 2014, 2015, the Cincinnati Bengals had an elite or at least above average run blocking offensive line. This year on playerprofiler.com, a 95.4 offensive line grade. That's number 18. If you're below 100 on the playerprofiler.com run blocking efficiency grade, 
you're putting the running backs in challenging situations. And if you want to explain Jeremy Hill and Giovanni Bernard's struggles this year, look no further than that offensive line. Giovanni Bernard is going to be a 2016 version of the 2015 Shane Vereen. Because of the offensive line, he will have less double-digit fantasy point performances than he did last year. He will still have the occasional explosive week where he catches 5-10 to 10 passes, rolls up over 100 yards, and has a touchdown. He will have boom weeks, like Shane Vereen had boom weeks in 2015, but he's going to be frustrating because they're going to be few and far between, and you're never going to know when to start Giovanni Bernard. That's why if you can get reasonable value in trade for a Giovanni Bernard right now, you take it. Yeah, and Bernard's hard for me because I really like the talent. I think he's a very, very talented player. I'd say he's, you know, a top 10 to 12 talent in the NFL at the position, which maybe is a little bit higher than most people have, which is fine. But I do agree. I love backs that have his profile. Mm -hmm. If I had to choose between DeAndre Washington and Latavius Murray, I would absolutely pick DeAndre Washington. I love the space backs more than most people. Yeah, Bernard's a guy who, as we talked about with Sims earlier, he's not a guy who can't run between the tackles or any of those kind of narratives that exist. He's a guy who's proven that he can run inside, outside, great pass catcher. I mean, he's a guy who can do everything. And has multiple thousand yard seasons and he's only 24, I believe. So, you know, it, it, to me, it's hard to want to sell a guy like Gio at the same time. I get it because it's hard to say if that situation gets any better. And that's always a component that comes into play with dynasty rankings, right? Is that situation. Well, that's where we have to make a distinction between redraft and dynasty. His situation could absolutely improve next year and make him a great value now in dynasty. So you can make a case for trading for Giovanni Bernard in dynasty this year while also trading him away in redraft this year. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's that's the mindset I have for this year is he's probably not helping you a ton in redraft, but he still has enough name value to get you something. Right. And in Dynasty, I'm probably holding. At the very least, holding. I don't know if I'm buying, but I'm definitely holding. We've been talking a lot about the Oakland Raiders. And one of the big boom weeks that we saw this past weekend was Michael Crabtree. This past weekend was interesting. We have one of these weeks every season, an upside down week, where all the 0-3 fantasy teams win and all the 3-0 and fantasy teams lose. That was this week, an upside down week. It's typically a week that features maximum volatility. So if you had Julio Jones or you played Michael Crabtree, you won. If you didn't play Michael Crabtree, you didn't play Julio Jones, you probably lost. Now, talking about the Raiders, talking about Michael Crabtree, I love Amari Cooper. I do. I love Amari Cooper. I can't say what I'm about to say without first prefacing it with, I love Amari Cooper. I love Amari Cooper. I love Amari Cooper. I love Amari Cooper. But Michael Crabtree's the number one receiver in Oakland, is he not? I mean, he's definitely the most targeted, and he's the red zone guy. I mean, those two things are clear. I don't think anyone can argue those two things. Crabtree's the red zone guy. Crabtree's going to be your guy who leads in targets. And the presumption has always been with Amari Cooper, and you saw it in college, and you saw it even a bit last year, is he should be the type that offsets a few less targets relative to a guy like Crabtree with more yardage because he's going to be used on you know greater yardage routes and things like that. Unfortunately, that red zone lack of usage is what really kills him, is that he's going to be a guy who's going to accumulate yards fine, 
But that upside is limited because unless he breaks a big play for a touchdown, he's not getting them. And that's where I'm frustrated. And I'm a huge Cooper guy. I think I have him third or fourth overall in in Dynasty because I believe in him that much. But, man, in that offense, it's really hard. And the thing is, he was so productive in college, so productive in the red zone in college, just such a – I mean, he's such an elite receiver to me. It's painful for me to watch him not get any red zone targets. Meanwhile, Clive Walford gets waltzed out there and gets targets in the red zone. It's just, uh, it's, it's awful. The Walford waltz? Oh, my God. It's it, it's like as if Cooper's Jerick McKinnon and Clive Walford's Asiata, and they're not at the one. They're at, like, the 15, and they're like, yeah, let's just pull McKinnon out of this because that's basically what it feels like is happening, and it is just, uh, it's, it's killing me. It's just killing me. Amari Cooper, two red zone targets this year. That's a 12.5% red zone target share that's 81st in the league i had kevin cole on the program earlier in the year before the season started we were talking about drafting amari cooper ahead of ty hilton and i said that's a mistake you should be drafting ty hilton follow the targets we're not sure who Derek carr's number one receiver is yet we're making an assumption it's going to be amari cooper based on his prospect profile based on his talent profile but we can't be so sure you mentioned amari cooper prolific college receiver do you know who the most prolific college receiver of all time is i feel like you're leading me into something here so go ahead at texas tech michael crabtree was the most prolific college receiver we've ever seen over a two-year period and now you look at that red zone target share going all the way back to last year 13.6 percent for amari cooper and then 12.5 percent this year he's been outside the top 75 in red zone target share now for two years 20 total games whereas michael crabtree his red zone target share has been above 20 percent that's top 40 in the league in consecutive seasons and if you just look at raw targets last year 146 targets for crabtree 130 targets for cooper the crabtree cooper target comparison for 2015 was my argument for drafting ty hilton ahead of amari cooper in redraft this year but this target distribution is also an argument for simply changing our perception of michael crabtree not just because he had a three touchdown game it's easy now after a three touchdown game but we've been saying this for weeks that Michael Crabtree, like Emmanuel Sanders in Denver, is the target leader week in, week out, and we need to change our assumptions about who the number one wide receiver is in Oakland. It's actually Michael Crabtree, and to say that out loud, I feel like the Dynasty community as a collective is just going to show up at my house like the show The Leftovers, the guilty remnant wearing the white robes, smoking. You love smoking. (laughs) And they're going to call me out onto the lawn and just emblazon a scarlet letter on my chest. Like mutilate me with the capital A for Amari on my chest because I dare say that Amari Cooper is not a number one receiver in the NFL. How dare you, Matt Kelly? So, yeah, no, you, you brought up a great point with Crabtree because people forget that he was a top 10 overall pick when he came out. He had the injuries and everything, so that kind of you know, derailed his career a bit. But the other thing, too, is Derek Carr is a guy who gets the ball out very fast, and Crabtree, and, and I'd say Cooper, too, is the same type in terms of they get separation so fast because they have that, that burst, that suddenness to their game. And so 
I get why Crabtree's the 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 guy who's going to be targeted a little bit more often. I think they're trying to use Cooper more in the intermediate to deep game, and it seems like Crabtree gets used a lot more underneath. And the and the point I'll make here is you think about Golden Tate, Emmanuel Sanders, you know uh, Julian Edelman, some of these guys that maybe don't get quite the accolades they deserve given the the volume of targets. Crabtree comes out cheaper than all of them, and I don't understand why he gets kind of ragged on more than any of the others because I would argue his upside's at least where they are, if not maybe even higher than a few of them in the case of Golden Tate and maybe even Edelman. So obviously no one's dropping Michael Crabtree at this point. You can now post him up as your number one wide receiver for your fantasy teams. Yay! I think it's true. I think it's true. I think it's hard to argue with putting Michael Crabtree in that number one wide receiver chair for your fantasy team. He's scoring 20.2 fantasy points per game. That's number six in the league. So Michael Crabtree, like Eric Decker last year, can be a WR1 in fantasy while playing a possession receiver role and scoring a lot of touchdowns. Yeah, I mean, he's a guy who already has three games of seven plus receptions. That's how many he had all of last year. So, I mean, he's exceeding what he did last year, and some of that has to do with a greater catch percentage and everything else. But, I mean, it just shows that he's the go-to guy for Derek Carr when he needs somebody. It's not Amari. It's not anybody else. You know, you want to name the other guys because there is nobody other than Crabtree and Cooper in my mind. But that doesn't mean that Cooper's not still a viable player. I think he's still a very good player. I think he's going to become that wide receiver one. And and what we talked about earlier – I mean, he's still so young. He just was very advanced for a young player. So it's kind of scary to think that if if these career arcs exist and everybody kind of operates on this like career arc plane, his has shifted so much higher than everyone else that it's scary to think what he might become in two years. But for now, Michael Crabtree is there. And my argument is you need to start thinking about Michael Crabtree the way we were thinking about Keenan Allen before the season. Because on Player Profiler, Michael Crabtree's best comparable player is Keenan Allen. And he has Keenan Allen's exact fantasy points per game from 2015 currently at this time in 2016. That's just how he needs to be viewed. Keenan Allen, an elite possession receiver, if we entrusted Keenan Allen with second round in fantasy brand equity. Why can't we do it with another elite possession receiver, Michael Crabtree? And I say this because I am not a buy low, sell high guy. I'm the opposite. I buy high and sell low. I get something for guys before their value reaches zero. And I identify ascending players and I trade for them after they've broken out but their owners are not quite believing what they're seeing. That's why you can still trade for Michael Crabtree at a value at this particular point. Now, I have dropped players in which I regret dropping. In week two, I dropped Brian Quick. Last week, because it was an upside-down week, Brian Quick had two touchdowns. What? In week three, I dropped Robert Woods. And now Sammy Watkins is out, and Robert Woods is dominating the target share in Buffalo. Robert Woods is our number one waiver wire target heading into week five. Last week, who did I drop? Dontrell Inman. Yes. Every week, just go to who I'm dropping and be sure to go pick up the players I just dropped because they are destined to break out. Dontrell Inman this past weekend, seven catches, 120 yards, and a touchdown, 25 fantasy points. These are the players 
in that final roster spot on my teams. And I just keep cycling through that roster spot, picking up all the wrong players in the wrong weeks and dropping the wrong players heading into the wrong weeks. Heading into week four, I jettisoned Dontrell Inman to pick up Marquise Goodwin. Now, I've learned my lesson. Just because Marquise Goodwin did not erupt in week four, mostly because of game script, the Buffalo Bills were not passing in the second half at all, up 16 to nothing against the Patriots. So Marquise Goodwin didn't have significant opportunity to break out. He did have five targets, though. He started in two receiver sets opposite Robert Woods. And Marquise Goodwin is one of the elite athletes in the league. He has great upside. I mean, you can say what you want about Marquise Goodwin, but he has elite upside. We can all agree with that. Go to his page on playerprofiler.com and you can see what athletic upside looks like. Marquise Goodwin has a 124.2 92nd percentile Spark X score. He's incredible. So I'm not dropping him. I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to drop him because I know if I drop him, he'll have three catches for 120 yards and two touchdowns next week. But the paradox is because I'm not dropping him, that means in week five, he'll do nothing, right? Uh, pretty much, yeah. And <laughs> I dropped Brian Quick too, so I, I can share that pain Yay, with you. Yeah, somebody, thank <laughs> God, somebody else to share my pain. Because he had that big touchdown, and then he followed it up with two touchdowns, and that was that was supremely painful. Painful. I did trade Dak Prescott in a super flex league for a 2017 second, like three days before Romo got hurt. Oh. And so that was a little oh, painful because because so uh, <laughs> I was like, oh. I'm, I thought I was selling high, as 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 you know, we we kind of just talked about, but then obviously it got a lot higher. Oh, the sell high trap! I'm still happy with it, but I'm not as happy as I could have been if I would have waited one more week. But you know, it, eh, that's brutal. A guy you can't draft with a 2017 second rounder, Juju Smith-Schuster. You can't. He's going to be a first round pick. I don't care what the numbers look like after four weeks of the college season. By the end of this season. Juju Smith-Schuster's production will be at an elite level as it's been in previous seasons. Last week, he did score three times. So three touchdowns in a game for Juju Smith-Schuster. All is right in the universe. Is he your number one dynasty receiver, or are you one of these people that has Corey Davis up there? I have Juju first, and yes! uh, and that's where that's where Nick and I Juju! maybe disagree a little bit because he's a Corey Davis guy, a big Corey Davis guy. When you look at Juju's season... When you look at Juju's season, I mean, he's caught five of the team's seven pass touchdowns on the year. So it's not so much that he's doing poorly, it's that the team's not very good. You know, he has 18% of the team's targets, which to me seems absolutely insane. He should have close to double that given, you know, the disparity at receiver after him. But he's still accounting for over a quarter of the team's receiving yards. So obviously he's overperforming relative to that target share. And he's a guy who in the last two games, you kind of mentioned, you know, he had the three touchdowns last week. He's caught 15 of the 18 targets he's had thrown his way the last two weeks. And two of the three 20-plus yard plays are in those last two games. So, I mean, he's kind of hitting his stride as they finally figured out who the heck is the quarterback at USC. Because I watched that Alabama-USC game, and that may have been one of the most painful offenses I've watched in recent memory was 
that USC team trying to figure out what the heck they were doing in week one. So you mentioned the Phil Metrics podcast that you host with Nick Whalen. So you're the metrics person and Nick is the film person. So because of your experience, perhaps you can answer this because I can't find analysis on either side of that coin, metrics or film, illuminating why anyone, anyone was touting Dwayne Allen before the season. Dwayne Allen was the most overrated tight end of the NFL coming into the season in fantasy football circles. The most overrated player on the Colts. Yes, even more overrated than Andrew Luck. Because the analysis around Dwayne Allen was vapor. It was based on nothing. Draft Dwayne Allen in the later rounds. Why? I don't know. Anything specific? No. I cannot explain why anyone was touting Dwayne Allen on either side of the aisle. I can't figure it out either, honestly. I think the only, as I as I look at everything, because Nick was not a fan. We, we talked about Dwayne Allen, not on the show, but we talked about him. Nick did not like him at all. I think he went on the no. he went on the Fake Goods podcast with uh, with Rich and Chad, Rest in Peace podcast. Uh, but he hated Dwayne Allen on that show. I distinctly remember that. And I was never a fan of him either. I think the only justification I've ever seen is... <laughs> Oh, well, Kobe Fleener's gone, so now he's going to get all these targets and it's opportunity. And I just didn't see it because you're getting a door you're getting door set back for a full season and healthy at the beginning at least. You had Moncrief coming back and should have a bigger role and then TY Hilton and then Andrew Lux returning. So, to me it seemed like at best he was the fourth option on a team that's barely been able to support two good options. But it's the tight end position, George. This isn't the running back position where the Minnesota Vikings will feed Matt Asiata in the red zone in 2014 enough to make a plodding fullback fantasy viable. It doesn't work that way at the wide receiver and tight end position. You can't just tout a tight end based on situation alone. That's a mistake. I think that's what we saw. I think that's what you're saying. Dwayne Allen was touted based on situation alone because his statistical profile, his larger talent profile, didn't justify him being drafted in fantasy leagues. And now what do we see happening? Who is posting the fantasy points at the tight end position for the Colts? Well, yeah, I, I mean, it's a guy who... Say his name! It's a guy who has a name that's like an early 1900 strongman. It's Jack Doyle, you know? Yes! He sounds like a bare-knuckle fighter or something. It's it's pretty incredible. But, but not surprising. No, absolutely but not. But not surprising when you realize that he's the guy behind Dwayne Allen. Dwayne Allen is vapor yeah it's it 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 never made any sense you know people wanted to tout his blocking i thought it was average at best and i'm not a guy who's a blocking expert so for me to say it's average must mean it's horrible so right i mean Dwayne allen isn't fantasy relevant so why are you talking about Dwayne allen matt kelly why is matt kelly so interested in Dwayne allen because i'm interested in how the sausage is made behind the scenes at the fantasy shops how are they baking this overvalued Dwayne allen where does it come from and the reason why it's such a conundrum is just what you said the film people don't like him the stats people don't like him who likes him Nobody! Then why are you telling me to draft him? He's that loaf of bread where you're like, oh, it looks good. And you're like, no, it's stale. So let's use it as breadcrumbs. And then you're like, no, it's not even worth it as breadcrumbs. Like, we just need to throw this out to the birds. That's kind of the point we've hit now. Like, it's not even, Dwayne Allen's not good enough for human consumption from a fantasy perspective. So... (laughs) 
the demise of Dwayne Allen in fantasy is imminently interesting to me for that reason. But the analysis around Dwayne Allen was also never super strident either. It was always, well, I have him as a tight end two with upside. Remember that analysis <laughs> of Dwayne Allen? Tight end two with upside. Yes. George, answer this. Why don't fantasy analysts say anything? Uh, am I not supposed to say anything? Is that kind of what you were? No. Why don't they say anything? Why is their analysis so bland and safe? They stake out every position on a player. The focus is about not being wrong, and I find that so maddening. Now, I'm, I'm with you there. It's it's funny because the example I can think of is you think about a guy like Dwayne Allen, which everyone said was like your safe tight end too, when first off, He's not! if you're going to roster a second tight end, why would you roster a second safe tight end? Why not roster Hunter Henry? Or somebody who at least gives you the opportunity for something greater. Sorry, I missed out on picking up Dennis Pitta after week one. Why? Because I was riding Dwayne Allen, of course, right into the fucking ground. <laughs> well, and, and, and it talks about past production, like you talked about, where we knew Pitta had produced in the past, and Dwayne Allen never did. So, you know, I never, I didn't have any Dwayne Allen share, so I can't say I was faced with that situation, but... Pitta cost nothing. Absolutely. Now, you could have been your tight end three if you had such a deep dynasty roster, and he wouldn't have cost you a single thing. And you could have still gone after that second tight end with upside. Any of those rookies, any of those young players that are out there, and at least if you missed on them, at least you could say, hey, I took a shot instead of Dwayne Allen, which is a shot to oblivion. You know, there is no sh upside shot there. There's nothing there. Dwayne Allen is that unfortunate combination of a player lacking production and lacking athleticism. And another reason I think he's interesting is because he's a bellwether player. I like identifying the bellwether player. Find the analyst who's telling you to draft Dwayne Allen, and that's the analyst you should never listen to again. Dwayne Allen is the canary in the cage in the mine shaft for me. <laughs> I, I, I kind of love that. I think that's the perfect analogy. Now, when fantasy analysts aren't being wrong about Dwayne Allen, they're overdrafting Tajay Sharp and Tyler Lockett. I also drafted Tyler Lockett in one league, a wide receiver heavy expert league. It was a huge mistake. I admitted it on air that I was tilting and it was a tilt pick. As the draft was happening, I said, I just drafted Tyler Lockett and I was tilting and I'm sorry. Huge mistake. Luckily, because I implemented zero RB, my team is still performing well, and I'm probably going to make the playoffs sign of the cross. And while I did draft Tyler Lockett in one league, at least I didn't call him this year's Allen Robinson. At least I didn't do that. But I still like him, especially in Dynasty. I still like Tyler Lockett. Tyler Lockett is a lot like Sammy Watkins for me, shaping up as a lost season because of a knee injury or in the case of Sammy Watkins, a foot injury. But it also is presenting a buying opportunity in Dynasty. Agree? Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing I'll, I'll, I I'll want to hit on that, that you mentioned, you mentioned that league and you were zero RB and you go after a guy like Tyler Lockett. And that's where I think the difference is between someone who goes zero RB and goes heavy wide receiver early and picks Tyler Lockett in the third or fourth round because you know you have options ahead of him. It wasn't that early. What, whatever that time frame was. I think what you're going to say is it was a luxury pick for me as opposed to a receiver I must hit on. Absolutely where I was going with that. I own him in one league, and going into the season, he was my fourth receiver at best. And that's where I was 
comfortable with him was, hey, again, kind of like our tight end conversation, he's a guy with upside. There's good things we see about him. You know, he had some good games, but, you know, hey, he losses. You know, I, I agree. I think it's a lost season here with the PCL injury. I don't I don't know PCL injury, so I can't say if he rests. We're not doctors. We're not doctors, everybody. <laughs> but it is a PCL injury. He's correct. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you have that knee injury, obviously you can tell he's struggling with the separation. He's not being used much in the deep pass game. He has, he lost that explosiveness from last year and that's fine. And you're willing to take that loss knowing that next year he's going to come back. And I agree. He's a, he's definitely a buy. He's a guy I'd be all over because I think people are going to be down on him. And a lot of people are going to be in that situation where he was meant to be their first or second wide receiver, their starter. And that's where maybe there's an opportunity to kind of offer that band-aid option to a team that maybe is still toying with contention early on and get a guy like Lockett that you can stash on your bench. So we're not worried about Sammy Watkins. We're not worried about Tyler Lockett's long-term future. Absolutely right. I'm with you hundred percent. What about Todd Gurley? Oh man. I, I, I worry about him a little bit in the short term and it's mostly just because of what's around him. I think Case Keenum actually hasn't been that bad. I don't think it's so much the pass game. It's just we knew it was a bad offensive line. We already kind of knew that. It just has been exacerbated to the point where he can't even overcome it. And and I would still say he's probably the most talented running back in the league, maybe outside of a guy like Le'Veon Bell. Really? Yep. <laughs> More talented than David Johnson. I have Gurley ahead of David Johnson, yes. I have him ahead of David Johnson based on age. Sure. There's a three-year age difference. That's a chasm when you're evaluating dynasty running backs. And I don't and I don't dispute Johnson's talent. I think he any questions I had about him, and I was one of the more hesitant people on David Johnson, as he's answered every single question without without issue. But going back to Gurley, it's a lot of the the offensive line that concerns me. I think he just gets hit so early in his runs. There's no opportunity for him to even make a move to avoid a tackle to gain extra yards. I mean, he's getting hit in the backfield so often. It's just kind of depressing. It's depressingly comical. <laughs> right, right. You're so sad, you have to laugh. Exactly. You're just so sad about his situation. That you just have... <laughs> it's, just, it's just ridiculous. It's, it's, it sucks! Sucks! God damn it! The weird part about it for me is that Todd Gurley's situation hasn't changed from 2015 to 2016. Similar quarterback efficiency, similar offensive line inefficiency. But this year, no evaded tackles, no breakaway runs. We talked about that new metric on playerprofiler.com, breakaway runs. You're just not seeing the breakaway runs from Gurley. Is he a different player? No. The best explanation that I can come up with is it's been four games. Four-game sample is a small sample. Big breakaway touchdown runs are in Todd Gurley's future this year. like menthol cigarettes where you're like oh you can't put mint with a cigarette and then they're like actually this kind of working some people like it so that's that's what we went with a cigarette analogy well you're looking great the conversation was about Jared mckinnon versus matt asiata and projecting the touch distribution and 
the usage. We disagreed. I thought they would use Jarek McKinnon in all phases, in all game situations, with the exception of on the one-yard line. That was it. I mean, that's where they used John Kuhn in New Orleans. So that's what I said to him. They're going to use him like John Kuhn, not like Jeremy Hill. That was pretty much a worst case. He's a more explosive Giovanni Bernard. That's not even bad. Right. You know, worst case in terms of touch distribution, that's what we're looking at. But I think best case is a lot better than that. So that was my argument to him. And do you know what he said back to me? You know what his response was? Aren't you the guy that liked Jeremy Langford? I short-circuited. I said, wait a second. You were programmed in a lab to come out with one highly negative take in February and just repeat that on a loop for the rest of the season until December 31st. Jeremy Langford was like one of the shortest limbs to be out on. On the other side of that spectrum was Matt Harmon and Allen Robinson last year. A lot of people in the Mexico community loved Allen Robinson, but Matt Harmon overwhelmed us in voluminous tweets and gifs. There's certain fantasy analysts are made of wires and they understand how to overwhelm the audience with a very myopic approach. I'm staking out positions on every player, and so often you see the ex post facto comments come in on YouTube when Jordan Howard has a 100-yard game or Kelvin Benjamin has a two-touchdown game. How's that take looking now? Delete your account yet? Oh, my God. The worst. The fucking worst. You get plenty of sports fans playing the result on you. Well, you're looking great. I've abstained from in-game player performance analysis through four weeks. I've been doing really well. It's like quitting smoking. Well, the tweet wasn't clever. I don't want to. I don't want to make that you know something that people actually think I'm saying because I'm not. Nothing good happens from game day Twitter. Exactly. You're just so sad about his situation. You just have. <laughs> it's just. It's just ridiculous. It's just. It's What's the fascination with Snapchat? And then I'm on there, and I'm a devil, and I'm a bunny rabbit, and I have a big sad face, and I'm like, this is it! This is so cool! So I just, you know, I'm gonna respond to people now with just a facial expression from Snapchat with me in a bunny costume or something going like, that's not a good idea. Well, you're looking great. You need to be the joy police on me. You can't let me get too excited. Your job is to lasso my joy and rope that in. Thank you very much for playing that very important role in the fantasy community. Well, you're looking great. We were at dinner, and I had to reply to someone, and I was trying to tell everyone to be quiet. Be quiet. I'm trying to record the Snapchat with no sound. I can't figure out how to mute the microphone, though. <laughs> Just everyone be quiet. And then my daughter's like, are you on Snapchat? So then it just becomes this whole thing where it took me five minutes to tweet this out. I had to go into the bathroom and tweet out like a picture of me as a bunny shaking my head because my family wouldn't cooperate on multiple levels with my fantasy football Twitter Snapchat identity. Dwayne Allen's not good enough for human consumption. Every week, just go to who I'm dropping and be sure to go pick up the players I just dropped because they are destined to break out. Well, you're looking great. 
And it's like, ah! And it's like, ah! Jesus Christ! She's really into Halloween. When we ride bikes, she wants to go in a cemetery. She's really into Mad Asiata. Oh, she's fascinated by Josh McCown. <laughs> because he's a masochist. He just throws himself at defenders so he can be injured as quickly as possible. She really was on the RG3 train. She's like, I can't wait to see how this ends. Well, you're looking great. I don't know why he wasn't drafted. I don't run an NFL team. I would have drafted him. I have playerprofiler.com. NFL GMs don't. Well, you're looking great. Sorry, I missed out on picking up Dennis Pitta after week one. Why? Because I was riding Dwayne Allen, of course, right into the fucking ground. Dwayne Allen is the canary in the cage in the mine shaft for me. Well, you're looking great. The guilty remnant wearing the white robe, smoking. You love smoking. <laughs> you have never, George. I'm not even going to ask the question because I know the answer. The answer is never. You've never heard of a satellite back in the NFL being called stiff or upright until today. Guess what, George? Those people love DeMarco Murray! I just can't believe it! It just drives me crazy! Jaquiz Rogers, you are rooting for Jaquiz Rogers to take over? Well, you're looking great. Wendell Smallwood is a workhorse bell cow. If you had a farm and somehow, some way, crossbred a bell cow and a workhorse, out would pop Wendell Smallwood. He's that good. I mean, I have him as an RB1 in fantasy this year, ahead of Ezekiel Elliott and David Johnson. Not by much, but slightly ahead of them. Yeah, I don't even know how to, how to respond to that one, man. Give me a bell cow. Give him to me now. Make him a bell cow tomorrow. Well, you're looking great. This is not on the show sheet, but I knew, I knew it. I know this man, George Kreedikos. Well, you're looking great. Mike Clay can eat it on Jerick McKinnon. Ha, 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 ha.